Very good morning to you all. How familiar is everybody with Sesame Street? Okay, at the end of Sesame Street, always a, a sort of, there was always like a special way of ending Sesame Street, and it went a bit like this. Um, you'll see the difference. This morning's service has been brought, brought to you by the book Exodus and the chapters 14 and 15. So throughout Sesame Street, there was a recurring, it was on with the letter A and the number 12 or something like that, and it was throughout the whole service. So our entire service this morning has been led, uh, not by me, well, sort of by me as well, but by those two chapters. We're going to follow them in different sections as we go through this morning. We've come to remember the central action of God's interaction with mankind, the life and death of Jesus. And Jesus' sacrifice is echoed and printed throughout all of God's interaction with mankind. And the passages we're looking at today are no exception. This act of love is also printed and echoed in our lives too. Uh, and Jesus has become the centre of our lives. And so we'll sing our first hymn together, Jesus, Priceless Treasure. Shall we pray together? Lord, we come to you, into your presence this morning, and we come to remember events that are dark and grim at times. And we thank you, Lord, that we thank you, Jesus, that in and through the dark actions that you are a Lord of gladness. Father, in, from time to time in our lives, the storms may come, the storms may, may gather. And I pray that as we're gathered here today, we can get, we can find a little bit of your gladness. We pray, Lord, that as we remember your great love for us, that we can be uplifted and brought to a place that honours and takes part in your love. Father, hear our worship and our praise and our service this morning. Move amongst us and speak to us. We ask it in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. So Joe's written, Pete remains in Pete Griffiths, that is, remains in Trafford General Hospital. He is making progress, but Christine requests that visiting remains limited to family members only at present. We pray for Charlotte and all the family as they mourn the loss of her father, and particularly as his funeral is due to take place this week. We're still thinking of Mary and Jack. Um, as Mary continues with her radiotherapy, she tells me that there's only three left and she's looking forward to the end of that, as you might imagine. Bill is on holiday with Derek and Rosie and we hope and pray that they have a safe and happy time. Again, we pray for expectant mums and dads and their families. And Joe reminds us that we should continue to think of Pauline, Marion and Gladys, who's here today. It's nice to see, to see you here. Who, uh, who struggle through life um, with illness and other problems. 
And Joe also says that we wish to encourage prayer for the work and witness of church members in our everyday lives. And in particular, to pray for the work and witness of those who are retired and make such a big contribution to what is done from here um, at the Bethel. So that's the notices that Joe's given me. Is there anybody else who would like to have anything included in our pastoral prayer? So that's Nancy's great-niece, Melissa, who's had a miscarriage. I know it's quite hard to put your hand up and for some, some people to say anything in this environment. So um, obviously, if, if you have other people you're concerned about and that we're not going to include in this prayer, then just bring them before God and we'll, uh, we'll share that together perhaps afterwards. So we'll just offer a word of prayer. Father, when Mike started the service today, he reminded us of the metaphor of storm clouds gathering in some of our lives. And you can certainly, I can certainly see grey clouds in some of the lives of the people that we've remembered today. Christine and Pete and their family, and Charlotte and Martin and their family, in Nancy's great-niece's family, in David's cousin Lucy's family, and in Mary and Jack's family too. And my prayer, Father, is that you will lift the storm clouds and shine your bright light of healing onto those people. So that if at all possible, and if it's your will, Lord, that you will make them healthy and whole. But most of all, Lord, so that you will help them to know that you are there. And that you are close to them, even in the stormy times. And that they have you to turn to, and your lovely son, Jesus. Sometimes... The light after the storm is some of the most special light. It's a time when everything feels peaceful and perhaps we appreciate things all the more after the hard times. And so I pray that you'll bring that feeling to those who are suffering. The feeling of the fresh smell and the warmth of the sun that comes through after rain so that they have a sensation in their life of comfort instead of troubled times. And Lord, we've been asked to remember families who are preparing for new members. We've been asked to remember those who struggle from day to day and we've been asked to remember those who commit their lives to you in work and witness and care of others and my prayer is one of thanks thanks that you fill our lives with opportunities to show true fellowship to show the love that Jesus showed to us in his life And I pray that those of us who have missed opportunities will be inspired by those who never miss an opportunity to make a real difference 
to those that we come across and ultimately to bring them close to you and to your son Jesus Amen Thank you Steve So as as I've explained we're going to read through the events of Exodus 14 and Exodus 15 which is Exodus 15 is today's reading we're going to break it up into four sections Uh, I'm going to let the words guide us through our time together this morning Passages are about God saving his people. And I hope that as we go, we'll find some useful parallels between God saving his people out of Egypt and God saving his people through Jesus. But before we take the first reading, I'm just going to do a bit of the, uh, the story so far in Exodus. In chapters 11 and the chapters before 11, we've got the ten plagues of Egypt. When God declared to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, his intention to rescue the children of Israel out of slavery. And Pharaoh deciding to remain opposed to to God. And in chapter 12, we have the last dreadful plague, which finally convinces Pharaoh to let the Israelites go, the death of the firstborn son. And we also have in that chapter the sacrifice of a lamb. The lamb that was made the focal point. The focal point for everyone to remember of how God saved his people. That was to be eaten every year to remind them that they were saved out of slavery by God. And this morning, like every Sunday morning, we come together to remember the saving of God's people and another release from slavery made good by the death of a firstborn son, by Jesus himself. And the Last Supper, of course, took place at a meal that was the centre of this Passover feast. And Jesus, too, is this Passover lamb the lamb that was slain, chosen by God as the focal point, the place for us to look at where God describes to us how he saves his people. So we're going to take our first reading now. Um, We're now at chapter 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pihahirot between Migdol and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea directly opposite Baal Zephon. Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, What have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready 
and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots, along with all the other chariots of Egypt, with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped near the sea of Pihahiroth, opposite Baal-Zephon. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians, marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, Leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Thank you. So, God brought his people out of slavery with a mighty hand. In the case of the Israelites, as we've just been reading, physical slavery from Egyptians. In our case, slavery to sin and death. Slaves so that our lives are no longer ruled by our own selfish desires, instead becoming slaves to God. Which, as people who are slaves to God know, is where real freedom is. But in both cases, the same patterns apply. We are made free in a place of unspeakable darkness, with the blood of a Passover lamb. And the victory is clenched by the grim death of a firstborn son. And as we were reading, the promise of freedom arrived. The promise of freedom had come. The time to be released from slavery had arrived. And the Israelites marched boldly out of Egypt. But slavery lurks, waiting to take us again. We read that every single chariot and horse and soldier in Egypt was mobilised. And overtook the Israelites. And have you ever been there? Marching out boldly, nothing but blue skies ahead. And you are overtaken. Overtaken by fear, overtaken by anger, overtaken by panic and confusion. And it's in times like these, these times when we're overtaken, that our faith is tested. It's in times like these that we question God, question his actions, his methods. And the Israelites too are asking questions. And this, this episode in Israel's history, it's not just here for our entertainment and interest, is it? It's not just uh, a history, history lesson. As Paul says in his first letter to the church at Corinth, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the, fulfill, the fulfillment of the ages has come. And he was writing about these specific times in Israel's history. And the Israelites ask, 
a very fundamental question. Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? And you know, I don't really think it's a technical question about the number of graves, about whether they'll fit. I don't really think that's what they're asking. They're questioning God's intentions. They're questioning God's integrity, that he will make good his specific promise to rescue his people. They're questioning God's ability to save. And perhaps most importantly, they're questioning God's love for his people. We're going to uh, sing our next hymn now. And it's about these times, these times when we're overtaken by all kinds of fears, some external, some deep inside ourselves. And it's okay to be afraid, it's okay to ask questions. But it's our approach, our attitude in these times that's important. How we ask the questions and what we choose to do with the fear. And what assumptions do we make about God in these times? So this song is for exactly these kind of times. Let's have our next reading, which is Exodus chapter 14 still, and just two verses, verses 13 to 14. Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm. And you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Let's just think about this situation that Moses was in. He's threatened on three sides. On one side, the entire Egyptian army... And you can't mistake this for some um, kind of diplomatic delegation that was heading out to meet them. It was everybody. And they'd ridden out in haste and in force. And Pharaoh himself was at their head. And Moses, having been brought up in the Egyptian court, knew as well as anybody what this army was capable of. And on the other side, facing Moses, a fierce revolt from his people, who were desperate, afraid for their lives, and specifically blaming Moses and God for putting their lives under threat in this situation. And on the third and final side, the sea. Cold, harsh, unrelenting, unyielding icon of nature's raw power. And let's just think a little bit about who Moses was. Privileged Egyptian aristocrat, positioning himself as the leader of the people he left behind, Saving a people who, by their own confession, did not want to be saved. He 
called himself, in, back earlier on in Exodus, we read, I am a man of faltering lips. And this is what it says uh, in the book of Numbers. That Moses was an, a man with an exceptionally low opinion of himself. This is, what it, this is what it says in Numbers 12, verse 5. Now, that Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. It was the wrong situation. And by all accounts, no matter which way you looked at it, he was the wrong man. And yet God chooses to work when it's all wrong. When everything is wrong, God chooses to work. Maybe it's because in such situations, the only thing that remains is the thing that cannot be shaken. And those things, the things of God, become conspicuous. They are seen more clearly than at any other time. And here we have, in these two amazing verses, a conspicuous, clear example of God's work in the life and the heart and mind of one man. In the most horrific situation, the man, the most timid man, Moses, speaks with such sublime peace, with such unmovable faith, with authority and confidence, and with words that are so beautiful that they resonate through time and history. And they arrive here at our ears today off the pages of an ancient text to equip us for the fears and the terrors and the enemies that we face in our lives today. To speak the calm truths of God about his faithfulness into our panicked hearts. And I think the single most important thing about Moses, the thing that was different about Moses, is that though he, I don't think he'd been specifically told, he knew the answer to those questions. Those questions that were underlying the, what the Israelites were thinking. Did God bring the Israelites out of Egypt with a mighty hand just to wipe them out in the desert? Moses knew the answer to that question. Does God go back on his promise? He knew the answer. Is saving God's people too difficult a task for him? Moses knew the answer to that question. Does God love his people? He knew the answer. I wonder if we could just read those verses again, please, Moses. Do not be afraid. Stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. And again, there are parallels. The same pattern applies. Did God rescue us with a mighty hand, with the blood of his only beloved son, showing such love to us, then just to stop? to stop saving, 
to stop keeping his promises, to stop loving? I think we know the answer. We need only be still. We're going to eat bread and drink wine. And Mark Holstead's going to lead our thanks for the bread, please. Hello, I, hello, I am back tonight. Lord, you cried on the cross. Forsaken feeling. Darkness had overtaken, was going to overtake the world. Just as the people in the wilderness, and Moses in the wilderness, you knew that the Father was in control. That, that we too feel overtaken by all sorts of different events and times of our lives. And we give thanks now, Father, to you that we need only be still. Remember the people of Israel that Moses lifted up that serpent that whosoever believeth on him would not perish but have everlasting life. You so loved the world, you gave your only begotten Son, that we truly only have a being of faith in Him. Confidence, we know we have confidence then in your strong arm to say. So then, Father, we look to our Lord, to His life that He lived in obedience to His death on well, we know he didn't need the nails, he didn't need the ropes to hold him on that cross. But his love for you, his love for us, held him there. So, Father, help us to replicate that love in our lives. That love can give us confidence to be still as we await the return of our Lord. When the grief, the tears, the fears, the sin will be gone. And we perfectly with him will live and reign for eternity. Thank you for the Lord. Thank you for the bread. Thank you for this time of remembrance. In his name. Amen. Stay with you. Come and lead our thanks for the wine, please. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. Our Father, we've read this morning of a tremendous rescue a deliverance for your people Israel who on one side they couldn't turn anywhere because of the waters of the Red Sea and on the other side they were hemmed in with the army of Egypt bearing down on them they were trapped they were terrified and yet in amongst all this you spoke to them and you told them to be still. Because, Father, by your mighty hand and by your great power, you rescued them. 
you parted the waters of the Red Sea and you delivered them and you set them free from slavery. You set them free to worship you. And Father, with this cup, we think now of an even greater rescue. The rescue brought about by the death of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, on that cross. And Lord Jesus, simply saying thank you as we take this cup of wine doesn't seem enough. You are the perfect Saviour, the Passover Lamb, without blemish, whose blood was lovingly spilled for each and every one of us. And Lord Jesus, we love you. And so, Father, we thank you so much for this cup of wine. And we rejoice, just as Moses and Miriam did after you brought Israel through the Red Sea. We rejoice and we celebrate the victory of your Son, the Lord Jesus, as we take this cup of wine. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. We're going to have our next, next instalment. Exodus 14, starting at verse 15, please. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God who'd been travelling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to one side and light to the other side, so that neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He made the wheels of their chariots come off so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, Let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it, 
and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and the horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the great power of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. Thank you. You know, I think it's very easy when we read this passage to miss what's happened because before we started reading it, you probably mostly knew what was going to happen. It's such a familiar story, isn't it? The, the crossing of the Red Sea. It's sort of like one of the Old Testament stories. But imagine being there while it was happening. Imagine if you didn't know the punchline. So let's just, let's just try and be there. We're in Moses' position. We have three big threats, three doom-laden adversaries, the army, the Israelites, and the sea. Which one is going to be the easiest for you to overcome? I, I think I'd go for the Israelites. The Israelites would be the easiest to win over, possibly. And then possibly I might think about the army because armies have been defeated. Armies have been defeated before in history. So maybe that would be the thing. But you'd never think of the sea. It's never been done before. The sea has never been defeated. It's impossible. It's unthinkable. But because God is God, that's what he decides to do. The impossible, the unthinkable. And we know the outcome. We know the outcome because we've read the account. But could you have foreseen this? That in picking one of the three, one of the three unmovable adversaries, in defeating the sea, that all three obstacles were removed utterly completely, as more completely than you could have possibly imagined. The Egyptians defeated to the extent that it says not one of them survived. The Israelites were brought round, turned, brought back in a turnaround so dramatic, so complete, that it's breathtaking. And you know, there was one more battle being fought that day. A battle that possibly we didn't think was an important battle. It was an important battle to God. And it's this. In verse 18, The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. When I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. And earlier on, in verse 4, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, but I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So, three unwinnable battles, and God won all four. Never underestimate God. When you're in a place of terror and fear and confusion, never, never underestimate God. Never try and predict what God will do. Don't imagine that God will choose like 
you or I the path of least resistance. Don't imagine that God will leave a battle half won. And also don't imagine that God won't be working for your enemies too. But it shouldn't be a surprise to us. Because the cross is exactly the same. The unthinkable path. The solution we couldn't possibly ever have imagined. The impossible. So we can't expect to look forward in our lives. We can't expect to look forward and predict how God will work in our lives. And I think though Moses didn't foresee what God would do, I think Moses made the right assumptions looking forward into the future about who God is and what God's intentions were. As we sang in our previous hymn, in the second verse, it goes like this. Be still, my soul. Your God will undertake to guide you in the future as he has in the past. Your hope, your confidence, let nothing shake. That could be Moses, couldn't it? And we're going to sing our next song now together. It's a song we've been singing here for many years. I remember when, as a teenager, I first learnt this song. I, I, I really liked it. I really enjoyed singing it. I thought it was brilliant. Great is the Lord. I always could say amen to that. But you know, something puzzled me about this song, and I struggled with it. In the second verse, in, sorry, in the chorus, it says, Lord, we want to thank you for the works you've done in our lives. And I always struggled to really understand what it meant. I could always say amen to God is great, but I struggled to understand what it meant to have God working in my life. And interestingly, it's the most powerful bit of this song for me now. And I hope as we go through our lives, we can, our perception of God working in our lives, looking at how he has acted faithfully in the past, in specifically in our lives and in, through, with Israel and with Jesus and everything he's done, that looking forward we can get a bit of trust as to who God is and to what his intentions are. So now we come to the next and final part of our readings this morning. And it is a little bit about this looking back after it's happened, looking back with confidence at what God has achieved. So shall we read that together, please? Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep waters have covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shattered the enemy. 
In the greatness of your majesty, you threw down those who oppressed you. You unleashed your burning anger. It consumed them like stubble. By the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The surging waters stood firm like a wall. The deep waters congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy boasted, I will pursue, I will overtake them, I will divide the spoils, I will gorge myself on them, I will draw my sword and my hand will destroy them. But you blew with your breath and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? You stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. The nations will hear and tremble. Anguish will grip the people of Philistia. The chiefs of Edom will be terrified. The leaders of Moab will be seized with trembling. The people of Canaan will melt away. Terror and dread will fall upon them. By the power of your arm, they will be as still as stone. Until your people pass by, O Lord, until the people you bought pass by. You will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance, the place, O Lord, you made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, your hands established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. The Lord is a warrior. It's a bit of an unfashionable thing to say about God, isn't it? The Lord is a warrior. We like to talk about God's love, I think, perhaps a bit more than we talk about his strength. I think that's right. You know the story of the ten plagues of Egypt, if nothing else, emphasise the extreme lengths to which God will go, to which he's prepared to go in love, even for his most highly sworn enemies, giving Pharaoh ten chances to turn around, to avoid harm to his people. But passages like this remind us that the God of love, the God who makes his promises that he intends to keep, is also the God who holds the world and its terrors in the palm of his hand. Pharaoh was foolish enough to take a stand deliberately, steadfastly, permanently opposed to the living God. And anyone who wants to take this kind of stand risks God looking at them and defeating them. Risks God sneezing on them and they are no more. And it's not a thing to dismiss, is it? Because God is our salvation. This unfathomable, untouchable strength 
is ultimately where our hope lies. So I thought we could close by singing in worship and praise to God, remembering his love, but also his strength. Two songs. The first one we're going to sing is uh, this Sing to God, New Songs of Worship. Father God, it's sometimes really difficult to look back and see the works you've done in our lives. The one thing is certain, you have done them. Past, present and future. One verse stood out for me this morning. God will fight the battle. That's one thing we can be absolutely sure of. Whatever we're coming to today, whatever our heads are, whatever our experiences, whatever our doubts, whatever our worries, whatever our fears, you will fight the battle. You will fight the battle and you will show your glory. We just have to let you. And that is my prayer, Father, as we leave this place, that we remember at all times, whatever we're going through, that you are on our side. And you're fighting the battle for us. It doesn't need our strength, because yours is more than enough. Help us experience that. Help us live through that. And help us rely on the one true God. Thank you for this morning, Father. Bless this morning as you bless our lives. Thank you. Amen.